are easy, but because they are hard. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. A date which will live in infamy. I still have a dream. Good night and good luck. It's One American Podcast live with Adam B. Coleman. What's up, Adam? How you doing? I'm doing well. So I don't know how I came across you on Twitter, the Twitter sphere, but I started following you and looking at your content, and I just thought that you'd be a really fun person, interesting person to talk to. It sounds like you have quite the life story. Yeah, I appreciate that. And um, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm all over the place, and a lot of people are finding me on Twitter. Uh, it seems to be a decent medium to express yourself to a degree, uh, right. you know, they're not completely free speech oriented, but you can at least get some of your message across. Yeah, absolutely. So I did um, pick up a copy of your book, um, uh, but I haven't had a time to seriously dive in. I read through it just sort of in a skimming fashion, mm -hmm. um, but pretty interesting stuff, pretty provocative stuff. Um, uh, what inspired you to write it? Um, I would say uh, the events of uh, George Floyd. Uh, after mm. his death um it was more so it's kind of interesting because i think george floyd is very pivotal i think 10 years from now or you know 50 years from now we'll look back and see the the shift in american politics uh because of the death of george floyd kind of like how we look back at you know the vietnam war in the 60s or you know and other cultural revolution kind of situations in the 1960s um but for me it was uh it was george floyd but it was the reaction of george floyd so it wasn't the situation itself uh i felt like uh the best way of putting it is america was having a panic attack um it was a panic attack about a situation that was kind of in my opinion kind of complicated unfortunate but then it went from that one particular situation uh, to extrapolating it to the existence of Black Americans or specifically Black men in American society, as if we are all George Floyd and we all have the same uh, danger of George Floyd, um, when that's not true at all. Uh, even statistically, it's not true. So for me, it was more so looking at everybody that's kind of around me, uh, friends, family, and they're all just basically overreacting about a particular situation. That's unfortunate. But then it's like everybody forgot what their life was like before that moment. Um, you know, um, like, for example, I know there are successful black people who all of a sudden have these like trauma experiences that they need to bring up. It was just like one, one big trauma experience that was resurrected um and some of it was manufactured um and it you know it, it just became a very overly emotional time whereas for me it wasn't you know and and for a period of time i kind of felt like am i the only one that feels this way um and you know before the book even came out at a very low profile um i had a facebook account friends and family, I rarely posted. I kept most of my thoughts to myself. And I had 
personal political transformation as well. Uh, even just like a personal transformation, just, uh, you know, developing into the man I am today. Um, but I, I'm pretty much, I'm kind of a private person. Um, so I, I keep most things to myself, or at least at the time I kept most things to myself. But after this occurred, I felt like I needed to express myself because I had the media speaking for me. I had the black elite speaking for me. I had all these other people speaking for me, uh, white, white liberals, progressives, you name it. Everybody was speaking for me. And I didn't feel anywhere close to what they were saying. And so uh, I, I sought after just trying to express myself initially online and in, in like free speech avenues, but then I got encouragement to, to write more often. Um, and actually to rewind a little bit years before, maybe like a, a year or so before I wanted to write a book, but I had no idea what to write about. Um, but it was always something that was kind of on my mind. And, you know, I started writing and got encouragement from people. And I said, I think I have something. And so I just came up with some chapters and just started writing and took me about nine months to completion, um, which was, uh, an interesting journey to come to that point. I really didn't tell a whole lot of people what I was doing. Um, you know, I let some people who were really close to me see certain things I was writing during the process to see, you know, to gauge their opinion. But I pretty much just kept it to myself and then put the book out and just tried to see if anybody wanted to hear what I had to say. Did the book wind up different than you expected it would be when you started? Yes. Um, part of the reason why it took me nine months and some people would be like, oh, that's a pretty short period of time for a book, but I felt like I could have finished it earlier. But part of the reason why is because my voice had changed. So in my attempt to express myself, um, you know, I just started writing and writing and writing. And then it was about, um, maybe three or four months in, I realized like my, my writing style was getting better. Um, and my voice was sounding different. And, you know, I went back and read the, the stuff I wrote in the very beginning. And I realized how angry I sounded, right? I was almost like chastising, I was being shocking. And, and, you know, I was just being very angry. Um, and that's not Good angry or tone. bad angry. It was a bad angry. It was more. So it wasn't like the Hitler angry, you know, rallying <laughs> in the crowd, you know, pounding the fist. <laughs> no, it was more antagonistic, mm. um, and that's not my that's not my normal demeanor. Sure. Um, you and seem actually, like a real angry guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm pretty reserved. Um, Those are always the worst. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reserved until you know there's a moment where I, I need not to be reserved, um, but. One one thing I realized after reading it was basically after after consistently writing and researching, it went from like, ah, oh, how could be, people be so stupid? That kind of mindset to being like, well, of course, you know, I get it. I get it now. So it became more, uh, I guess, like apathetic to the situation. And so that's why when people read the book, they I've heard people describe it as like me putting my arm around people's shoulder. Right, because mm -hmm. I understand what's going on and I'm being very personable about it rather than, you know, wagging my finger and saying do better or, you know, you guys are wrong. I'm not 
speaking in that particular fashion. Um, and in many ways, I'm not even necessarily talking about black people themselves. I'm talking about the ideology. I'm talking about the mindset. Um, so much of what I'm describing is, is more of the way people think and how they perceive things um, and not about black people themselves and not even really diving too much into history or even being ultra political. Um, so like I have a chapter talking about government, but it's about the way we view government and, and what it looks like to live a life surrounded by government where you have no independence. You know, these particular things, these particular concepts are, you know, abstract of race, right? So uh, I, I try my best to weave in and out of talking about race and just talking about mindset and ideas, which is why people of different, different, uh, even national origins, uh, people overseas who have read the book said, I was able to relate to it because this was my childhood. You know, this was what I experienced too. It's like, exactly, that's the point. This is not a black exclusive situation that I'm talking about. You know, everybody has a childhood. Some of us go through traumas. Some of us experience neglect, uh, single parenthood. You know, there is no race to a bad childhood. And that's the part that's relatable. That's really, really interesting. One of the things that occurs to me when we talk about the George Floyd incident and the outcome and ramifications of it is I don't think anybody knew, at least I didn't as a white dude, I didn't realize that there was a giant pile of wood just ready to be ignited. Right. So, you know, it's like that old expression, uh, overnight success, 20 years in the making, right? Mm -hmm. Where it seems like something happens all at once, but really there's so many contributing factors over an extended period of time that made it happen, right? And, and I guess my question for you is, why is it that the George Floyd moment, why did it pop in such a viral way where such a massive number of people were immediate, for better or for worse, we're just immediately on the same page about the how to respond. Um, I think there were very key situations that happened. So obviously, the video, sure, and the length of the video, um, the describing of a knee on his neck for an extended period of time is very like shocking. So there's that in and by itself, but the other contributing factors are COVID. Um, a lot of people were locked in. Um, and so this became like a rally cry for people to go out, but not only go out, but it was almost like a, a tension release, you know, for people to be locked up for months and then just explode onto the streets. Uh, the other thing, election year. Um, I think all, all of those things really, really contributed into that one particular moment. Um, in, in American history. And it was just a, a powder keg because of it. Um, you know, you had mentioned, you know, is this something that was kind of brewing for a long period of time? Uh, one of the things I kind of describe in the book, uh, I don't really say it like this in the book, but in many ways, black Americans are kind of groomed to be ultra sensitive when it comes to race become they're, they're very racial you know, we're a racial people. 
you know, it could be in a good way, you know, so you could watch racial humor. Um, you know, I grew up with black comedians who laughed about being black and then laughed at white people, but it was all fun and jokes, but were racial. These aren't necessarily things that the average white person would do, um, you know, in, in the same kind of way. Um, but because of uh, us being racially sensitive about certain situations, sometimes we misread situations. Sometimes we misunderstand situations. Sometimes things are racist, right? But if you grow up being racial, how do you differentiate the situation, right? You go into a store and someone's rude to you and you're the only black person that's there. Is it because of your race, right? But these are the questions that we are forced to ask ourselves. But the other questions that we don't ask ourselves is, well, is this lady just a bitch? Is she rude to everybody? Uh, you know, was she rude to the <laughs> right? Was she rude to the person just before you? Like you don't know. You just came into the store, and so it, it's that kind of thing that we have to differentiate. You know, and, and I think even like some of the viral videos that have come out, let's say post George Floyd, for example, um, some of them are kind of escalated by the people who believe something is going on, right? And, and it builds the tension in the situation and both parties get angry and accusations get thrown and things like that. So, um, you know, I think the other part where I was kind of leading into is, you know, the neo-Marxist movement has always been there. It's been there for a long period of time. Uh, as someone like myself who's been following the culture war for, you know, quite a few years before George Floyd, I would say at least a couple of years before George Floyd, um, everybody was saying this wouldn't hit the streets. It's going to stay in universities. Um, but the DEI industry, you know, has been there for a number of years. The, the neo-Marxist movement was there. It was, it was leaking into the, into the public and people were laughing at it and saying, look at these purple haired freaks saying all this stuff and using all this jargon. Right. And, we didn't take it seriously, but George Floyd became the legitimization to take on the neo-Marxist movement and have that become the mainstream narrative. It's the reason why everybody says white supremacy like they say yogurt, right? It's just part of, it's, the, it's in our vocabulary now. We didn't say white supremacy with the same amount of frequency five, six years ago, right? But now we do. You know, and now we have to say white supremacy as if it's everywhere is, you know, it's we have to speak in a, in a very particular way, you know, unconscious bias, you know, all these different things. This, this is all Marxist jargon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so now we have to pretend that it's always been there since George Floyd. So, you know, I think the neo-Marxist movement um, has really proliferated because of it. It, you know, and one phrase I, I say is, you know, when presented with an issue, people always want to find a solution. And then the Marxist movement, the anti-racist movement was the solution that was ready, right? It was primed and ready. Um, so they were ready to enter corporations. They were ready to enter schools. And, and, and in some ways they were already there. The DI industry was there um, for corporations, but it wasn't seen as a widespread adaptation right certain companies did 
Um, but, um, you know, I did some research on this and in a number of months, the DEI industry climbed uh, and increased 123% post George Floyd. So that tells you that companies were concerned about liability issues. Yes, that's exactly it. So this idea that uh, I'm working on this for my second book, so that's why I'm like researching this, but the idea that corporations all of a sudden have some moral conscience and they're all all of a sudden woke and and want to do the right thing is nonsense. You know, corporations is is a conglomerate of people and they make all different types of decisions, but they make decisions based off of liability, uh, cost, benefit analysis, um, you know, public relations, you name it. Um, And there's even documentation that shows like, Part of the reason we take on DEI is for liability and not much of what you'll see is for ideology. So you can look at corporations like Twitter. Yeah, they're ideological. It's very obvious. But you take a look at, I don't know, Pepsi. Are they truly ideological or have they just taken on this ready-made solution that covers their ass in case something happens within their company? Um, where everybody is hypersensitive, hyperracial, um, and someone misinterprets something and tries to sue Pepsi uh, or Coca-Cola or whoever, and then they say, well, listen, we have DEI within our corporation. We also have the, all, all the employees, these questions. We take you know, uh, bias training. We do all these things. You can't say it's our fault, right? So... You know, I don't really truly believe that most of these companies are are ideologues. I think they're trying to cover their ass in a post-racial, let me rephrase that, in a post-hyper-racial society that we're currently living in. So one of the things that occurs to me, I I really like what you're saying about the hypersensitivity. and, And, you know, I think you're saying something that I sort of, intuitively i'm like yes 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 but the way that you framed it kind of brings it from the subconscious to conscious conscious level so i I appreciate that yeah and it occurs to me that the hypersensitivity aspect of race it seems that it, it can only occur in a community where race is considered like a top three personal identity feature right so yes the word identity politics is thrown around quite a bit. But for example, like if you were to ask me to describe myself just on paper, like if it was a survey or, or whatever, there's like no fucking way that white would be in the top 10 list, right? But I imagine, and this could just be speculation, that that drastically shifts if you go to like a minority community, particularly the black community. Like yeah. I bet you there's a lot of black men that would put that like I'm a black man, you know, in the top three, right? There's yeah. nothing wrong with that, but the, the point that I'm trying to make is it seems to me very, very dangerous when not so much we perceive others by their race necessarily, but when we perceive ourselves by our own race. Because if you look at like the Third Reich, for example, it was just as much an antagonism toward the Jewish race as it was a false glorification or idolization of the Aryan race, right? Yeah. And so maybe I'm off base on this, but it seems to me like we really have to figure out how to, as individuals, discover our sense of selves, uh, uh, regardless of our immutable characteristics, uh, like race. It just seems like such a superficial thing that we've really, really trumped up. 
Yes. Um, and so, and I'll, I'll play the devil's advocate. Some people Please. would say um, black people were forced into this position to see mm-hmm. race, you know, based off of historical sure. events. Um, and I understand that. Um, but that doesn't mean that we have to continually live in that particular manner. You know, one of the problem that one of the problems I have with people who always reference the past is that they equate the present to the past and pretend like nothing has changed in between. Um, you know, it's like when people say, you know, uh, black people are disproportionately incarcerated today. That's just like slavery, right? Well, it's like, well, what about the, you know, all the years in between where we weren't disproportionately incarcerated, even when we had legal oppression, right? So those things matter. Um, but I think that you're absolutely right. Ultimately, based on what you're saying, you know, race is a flaw, right? And and I try to, I kind of talk about it a bit in the book, but I, I talk about it publicly. Race is a vulnerability, right? If you know that someone's weak point is their race and they're sensitive to it, you're going to constantly trigger it. Uh, it's the reason why racial pandering actually works in the black community to a depressing degree. Um, it's the same reason why, you know, uh, you know, Democrat politicians show up and, and talk to Al Sharpton at his uh, so-called nonprofit. And, um, you know, they all speak in a Southern twang all of a sudden, you know, it's the same reason why Hillary Clinton says she has hot sauce in her bag. It's the same reason why Hillary Clinton, you know, goes to a Baptist church and, and speaks like, uh, you know, with a Southern twang all of a sudden, um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's that kind of pandering towards black people. It is the, it's the signaling or the virtue signaling towards black people that says, I see you. Right. And it's because we are very sensitive about race. And if someone acknowledges our race, we view them as our friend, right? So to speak, in a very simplistic way of saying that. And, but the people who you know, know this about us, which I truly believe the Democrat Party sees that about us, is that they know that we see ourselves as Black first and maybe second, right? They, they see how important it is for us. So they're constantly using our vulnerability. They signal how you doing every four years, make promises, mm-hmm. and then after and that, then jack up the oil prices, which disproportionately harm minority communities. Exactly. Or they advocate for policies that hurt black people the most. Or they they say, uh, you know, we care about the education for black kids. It's not fair that uh, one of my favorite thing. And I actually I don't even necessarily automatically equate this to Democrats because there are some Democrats who are um, pro, you know, school choice. Right. They just they're just not very vocal about it. But progressives, on the other hand, I would say most of them, most of the prominent ones are not for school choice, right? But it is the one thing, education is the one thing that can really equalize and, and put a child in a trajectory towards success. And the idea that, um, you know, they'll use like this propaganda that says uh, it's systemic racism that kids, black kids who live on one side of this line, who, uh, you know, pay less, or there's less property taxes, they get worse schools. But the kids on the other side of the line have more property taxes and they have better schools. 
So they'll use that propaganda as simplistic as it is. And I can tear it apart to shred, uh, you know, I can shred it up. They'll say school choice is not a good thing. <laughs> they say keep them in those crappy neighborhoods, keep them in the crappy schools, let the government run schools that have been failing for decades in these particular neighborhoods, keep them in there. Do not give them school choice, right? You know, like Kamala Harris, when pretending, let's pretend like she was actually being serious. She was criticizing Joe Biden for being against busing of kids, right? Yet her getting bust helped her to accelerate to the position that she is and get a better education. So it's that kind of thing that they're completely inconsistent on. And, and Joe Biden for decades was not, he was against it. You know, he was against school choice. He was against kids having the opportunity, if there was room in another school to go to another school and get possibly get a better education, he was against that. There are cities around this country where they are practicing aspects of school choice and it's helping these kids, right? Ultimately, I kind of see school choice as a, it's like a last Band-Aid. If we want to specifically talk about race, it's a Band-Aid to the real problem that's affecting black Americans, but at least it's something, right? It's something that we can do on a public policy level um, to advocate for more charter schools, right? And this doesn't mean that every charter school is successful. Obviously there are ones that aren't good, but what we do know is there are public schools that have failed consistently, that kids are graduating illiterate. Um, this was a, a an article that I was reading, it, granted it was a little bit old, I think it was from like 2015, 2016, but it was saying that nearly half of the adults in, uh, in the city of Detroit are illiterate, right? Imagine you're someone who's trying to start a business in, a, in Detroit and you're saying, I want to do good and try to hire people. And half the people that you have a, a possibility of hiring, they can't read and write. That is a travesty, and that's the failure of the public school system. That's not even a race thing. You know, Detroit is majority black. Everybody who's in positions of power, school board, they're all black, right? So this sure. isn't even a race thing at this point. If, if This is a corruption problem. This is a government failure problem. And so my issue is the race part becomes the most simplistic thing, right? I use race as an entryway to say, actually, race isn't the problem. But if you care so much about race, why are you doing these things right. that affect the people of the, the race that you're talking about? But I know that the real problem is government failure. I know that the real problem is, uh, you know, not allowing people the choice. Uh, I know that the the number one problem is our fractured families, right? But there is no government policy that you can put into place to keep families together. There really isn't what you have to do is change the culture around it. So that's one thing I want, uh, that's actually a good segue because uh, Martin Luther King day this year, I, I was looking at civil rights stuff cause it was just everywhere. And I noticed the stark difference in the appearance of civil rights protesters, 1964 and black lives matter protesters, mm -hmm. 2020, right? I mean, when you look at those photographs, Martin Luther King, for example, someone you brought up in your book as a person that we idolize yet don't listen to. <laughs> yeah. And um, 
um, you know, dressed in Sunday's best. I mean, everybody looked sharp and the famous pictures of firemen hosing down men and women in suits. And it was just like, this is a, such a respectable crowd. Like that was part of, I think the, the aesthetic visceral, it was like an aesthetic visceral catalyst uh, to see someone who looks so respectable being treated like such an animal. Right. That's like yeah. one of the things that's so powerful about the civil rights movement, just historically. And my question for you, the reason I brought all that up is what changed, man? Like you, where is that community now in Sunday's best with like a legitimate, you know, uh, um, uh, grudge, right? Like there was some actual, like, I can't eat at this restaurant. Like what the fuck? That's racism, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's so, and I'm not saying that there aren't legitimate grudges today, but like, why did, like, how did the culture, like in one generation, it's like almost inverted. I, I don't know in terms of values. Man, there are so many direct, different directions I could bring this. So the one thing to kind of realize uh, about the movement, the civil rights movement, is what was Martin Luther King? He was a pastor, right? Mm -hmm. There was a religious element when it came to it. Um, they met up at churches, you know, which is why churches were bombed, right? They were meeting places for Black families, right? There were meeting places for Black activists. Um, churches were crucial to the movement, right? So like you said, Sunday's best, that's a reference to dressing up for church to show respect mm -hmm. uh, when you enter the, uh, the house of God. So it's that ideological framework of nonviolence, peace. Um, and like you said, for people who didn't live in the South, let's say you, you lived in the North and you're like, what's happening down there? And you watch, you watch the news and you see people standing there were in suits and ties being watered down in hoses. That's, that's the, uh, what's the optics? That's the optics that really worked for them, right? It wasn't them being aggressive because right. then people can justify their, uh, them being watered down because they're being aggressive. They're just responding to their aggression, but they're standing there peacefully holding hands and they're being attacked. And so viscerally, that is something that really stands out for people who who may not even be aware of what is actually going on. Um, they didn't have mass media the same way we do today. So to, to convey that message, they had to do it in a very careful manner. So um, why do they look different ultimately is because they are motivated by two different ideo ideological frameworks. You had Christianity and today you have Neo-Marxism. Hmm. Um, these are two opposing uh, ideologies. You have one aspect, the civil rights movement being, uh, you know, led uh, in the churches, supported by families, um, black male leadership, you name it. You look at Black Lives Matter, it is an organization that's ran by black lesbians. This is called what it is. Um, it is not pro-nuclear family, they explicitly said they want to dismantle the nuclear family. It is the polar opposite of what the civil rights movement is, which is why it looks so different, right? Marxists are about any means necessary, right? Uh, when it comes to the civil rights movement, at least that particular movement, they were talking the about, cheek. what's that? Turn the other cheek. 
Yeah, exactly. Turn the right. other cheek, which back then some people did not agree with. They thought it was weak. Malcolm. It was a weak positioning. Right. Malcolm Malcolm X initially didn't believe in that. So, you know, it's it's that kind of difference. That's why you see such a juxtaposed position. Um, there's, I think personally, there's like a love affair when it comes to being militant. Um, there's, you know, some people have this like, you know, love affair when it comes to the Black Panther Party. You know, this idea of standing up to the man and, and brandishing guns. And um, but, it was cool. Yeah, it, you know, it was just cool, man. It was <laughs> like, just cool. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, but ultimately, to For answer better question, or worse. <laughs> but uh, to answer your question, that's why it looks different. There are two. Mm. They are motivated by two different ideological frameworks, um, and and so that's why we have two different outcomes and in, in two different ways that they're they're choosing to to move about. Um, and one last thing, I do want to bring up. I truly believe there's a class element to this. So even if we talk about the leaders of Black Lives Matter, who are they? They're all college educated women, mm. right? Oh, we can leave out women, but they're all college educated, right? And to attend college, you have to be of a certain economic status for the most part, right? So these are at least middle-class Black women to upper middle-class Black women. And now today, they're wealthy. So they're definitely upper-class Black women. Um, you look at all these different professors that pop up, right? They're not poor. They're of a upper middle class uh, uh, stature. You know, it's kind of like, how come all the socialists are rich? <laughs> you know, it's it's that kind of thing. You're like, there's a, definitely a class element to this. You know, um, so I, I, I think sometimes we overlook that. And I think that's part of the problem with automatically thinking black and poor because you ignore that there is a class element even within the black race uh, conversation, right? And I talk about you know the the black bourgeoisie and the black aristocrats, right? Those two different levels who are wanting to cry oppression when one time in their life things didn't go their way, but the other hundred hundred times we just ignore those, right? So they always try to equate themselves as being we're all one, right? So like LeBron James, who's damn near a billionaire, uh, me and him have more alike than me and you, supposedly. But no, that's not true. The LeBron James has a completely different life, despite his skin color. You know, he's a, among one of the most wealthiest people that have ever existed in human history. So this idea that me and him have more in common than I do with you is ridiculous. We don't live anywhere near the same lifestyle, have the same access to things, uh, move around the same type of people. We can keep going down the list. And it's that kind of thing where uh, you look at the people who speak up about race. They are the most successful people, regardless of race, that have ever existed. That Within race, they're the most successful Black people that have ever existed in human history. Um, so it's there is a class element and you're you're not going to find too many lower class black people who are leading some sort of social movement today. Um, They're for the most part going to at bare minimum be middle class um, to upper class and beyond. So I think that's something that's important to kind of highlight. That's really interesting. Um, one thing you mentioned 
really fascinated me. You, you basically distinguished between the, the the Christian ideology that backed the civil rights movement in the '60s versus the the neo-Marxist ideology that's backing what we're seeing now. And yeah. when you mentioned that, it occurred to me there's there's something really there's a, there's a really interesting difference between the two ideologies that I want to ask you about or, or just bring to the to the table. Sure. The first is with with the Christian ideology, something I'm familiar with. Um, uh, you have to you have to choose Christ, right? Especially in the Baptist community, when you actually choose to be baptized, no infant baptism, right? Mm-hmm. This is a this is a culture of studying the Bible. This is a culture of uh, when in a moral uh, uh, riddle or puzzle or predicament, consult the Bible or your preacher, right? This is a culture of don't respond based off of what your inclination is, but do the right thing instead of the natural thing. Like turn the other cheek is a perfect example of that. Everybody wants to hit back. Right. But there's like an ideology that you choose and then, and then you, you, you submit to it and you obey it because of the morality, the ideology of it. Right. And so I think that's a very interesting difference between the Christian ideology and the neo-Marxist ideology, because I guarantee you, if you if you if you pulled anybody aside who was throwing Molotovs during one of these George Floyd protests and you mm-hmm. asked them if they were a neo-Marxist, they'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. <laughs> You're right. Like, what's a neo-Marxist? Right. And so that's yeah. what's kind of alarming to me about Marxism. And, and we kind of touched on this earlier, like Marxism was made for the street. I mean, it was made for low income people that were being oppressed by systems. Right. And, and I think that, that, that that's kind of what makes it, it's got viral baked in, you know, and it was really naive for us to ever assume that we'd just stay in academia because the whole thing was designed to spread among, among an uneducated mass. And, and, and I guess the, the point that I'm trying to make is, and I, I don't know, I don't know what we should learn from it, but it seems to me that we're in like a really scary situation in which we have these entire political movements occurring based on ideologies that people have adopted in which they are unaware that they have adopted them. Like at least the Christians knew they were Christian. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and I, and I don't know what the, I don't know what the solution is, but it seems to me like, uh, like that, that's a, that's a really dangerous place to be when you have, you know, massive swaths of people kind of getting in line without even understanding what they're in line for. Yeah. You know, it kind of reminds me of, like Karl Marx, for example, Karl mm-hmm. Marx wasn't, you know, a factory worker, right? He was basically taken care of, you know, by you know, either his parents or wealthy friends. Mm-hmm. Yet he complained about the class difference and the, the working people and all this other stuff. And I, I see that's why I bring up the class element to these movements today, because I kind of see that very situation. Uh, wealthy people who are spreading the the message of the oppressed working class um but in replace working class with race the the oppressed black and we need to do something right not me personally i'm not shedding any bloodshed i'm not going onto the streets to do these things right but the people need to do these things they need to do the bidding why because we're oppressed um i i think I understand why people get seduced by the uh, the Marxist ideology is because it makes big promises. 
and it puts people in the uh, in the position to be the savior. You know, there's a reason why Marvel movies are so successful. It's because people like superheroes and people, especially kids. You know, you kind of grow up wanting to be a hero. You want to save people. You want to help people. Uh, you know, boys want to be you know firefighters. Girls want to be nurses. Those are positions to help people. There's nothing wrong with helping people, but there's a difference between helping people and becoming the savior which is a different type of mentality. Um, and I think what we've been seeing within the past couple of years is the proliferation of the savior complex. Um, this idea that certain people need advocacy by other people, otherwise they cannot succeed. Um, it's so, so patronizing. Yes, it's incredibly patronizing. Um, but they don't see it that way, right? They're told that they have the privilege, so they now must speak up for the people who don't have the privilege. That's the only way that you can change the system, right? Meanwhile, they're saying, you're oppressed. And you say, I'm not oppressed. And they're like, you're only saying that because you've been brainwashed by this white supremacy system to believe that you're not, <laughs> you know, it's like mental right. gymnastics, ultimately to put them back in the position. Right. To, to put them back in the position of being the, the savior. Um, so I think there are people who are just naturally narcissistic who love this stuff and i think there are people who have good intentions who are seduced by this because mm -hmm. like i'll go back to what i said when presented with a problem you look for a solution and the marxist solution sounds wonderful right um you know i kind of talked about this before i've dived into different uh different avenues taken in all different types of content and there was one very small particular period of time in my life where I kind of like maybe racism is, you know, plus power, you know, it, you know, sure. It, it's yeah, worth maybe, considering, right? Yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of, you just kind of falling into that, listen to, you know, the Tariq Nasheeds and like, oh, let me hear what he has to Even say. Kendi's, maybe yeah. he makes a point, you know, but, uh, you know, I did notice in that very short period of time, I had a level of like anger and, and I was like, I don't, I don't like how this feels. And then I looked at my life, right? How can I sit here and, you know, try to build some sort of animosity towards other people when so many, so many white people have helped me as well as black people. Um, and I, and I went back to like, well, people are people, you know, they're fucked up people of all skin colors, right? And on top of that, you know, my son is mixed. My son's white and black. So, you know, for me to to view the world or or even try to racialize my son, um, you know, I'm glad I woke up from that. You know, like I said, this was a period of time where I had a job where I could go on YouTube all day and just take in all different types of content. Uh, and I was like, this is new stuff. I never heard of this. Oh, let me let me consider this. Um, but you know, that didn't last too long in my life. Um, so yeah, I, that's ultimately what I want to say. <laughs> no, it's, that's, that's a really interesting perspective. And when you're speaking, you know, it occurred to me based on some of the things that you said, like from a political standpoint, it's almost inverted from the, from the intuitive notion as to which party actually has genuine incentive to solve racial problems. And what I mean to say is, the Democrats have 
leaned so much on the race issue and class issues that it's gotten to the point where it's it's clearly a necessary exploitation of whatever mm-hmm. problem there may or may not be, whether it's real or not. It's a necessary exploitation in order to uh, um, gain and sustain power for the left, right? Yeah. They have to campaign on racial issues. They have to campaign on equality issues, whether it's sex, whether it's race, whether it's sexual orientation. They, they really lean on these problems existing in order to propel them to positions of formal authority, right? Yeah. And it's funny because the right is sort of accused all the time of either being explicitly racist or just totally apathetic to racism. Like, all right, Mm -hmm. I'm not racist, but I don't give a fuck if, you know, you're experiencing a problem because of your race. Like, that's kind of the brand that's been projected onto the right. And it's funny because we saw this with Trump. Whether whether I haven't looked at the policies and the the data, so whether it actually manifests, I don't know. But rhetorically speaking, Trump was always pushing, you know, black unemployment's at record lows. Like there was really a concerted, intentional effort for Republicans to associate better outcomes for racial minorities with Republican parties, with the Republican Party. Right. And so it's funny because like the Republicans are scrambling to try to figure out how to help these minorities because they want to pull the rug out from the left. And, mm-hmm. and, and then the left is like trying to keep it a problem. Like, no, it's still a problem. So it's like, it's like, it's like this opposite thing where you have the left that's like, you know, preaching to like try to fight for the rights of, of you know, the, the, the most vulnerable among us, yet absolutely needing the most vulnerable among us to remain vulnerable. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's definitely uh <laughs> I mean, listen, uh I I wrote a thread on Twitter today talking about how there has been a political shift. So, you know, Trump is a is a huge impact on the right. Uh I think even bigger than let's say apolitical people really realize. Um he was a huge shift that kind of siphoned the moderates over to his side um into adapting into the what i call like the the new right you know some some people um you know it's interesting because we we throw around the word like conservative and then some people say well what are they trying to conserve Hmm. but if you feel that your country is being attacked culturally uh that up is down down is up a man is now a woman and woman's now a man there is no consistency. You're trying to conserve normality, right? You're, you're trying to conserve reality. Um, and so in many ways, you know, the, the political spectrum has shifted to the left so to such a degree where people who just had mainstream liberal thought um, are now seen as right wing. And so now they are trying to conserve traditional liberal principles, right? Which is why, like, for example, on the right, you always hear them talking about free speech, partly because they're the ones who are being censored. So you're always going to scream the loudest when you're the one who's being censored. But um, that was a left issue. Yeah, yeah, that was a left issue. Um, And so now that that's why you're seeing this adaptation into the right, because a lot of them are former liberals you know, a lot of them are, or were moderates or, or sometimes even apolitical, uh, but maybe they would call themselves like default Democrats. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, the walkaway movement is filled with these people of all different shades and colors. So, you know, there has been a shift um, and, and it's been like an adaptation from the left to the right, um, which is why the right seems more expansive than it was maybe in previous years. And I could be wrong about this, but that's just kind of how I'm seeing it, how I'm relaying this information. I don't think, I think what with the right and when it comes to the topic of race, um, people who are on the right tend to be more individualistic. Sure. You know, Ayn people Rand. on the left, yeah, t- yeah, they tend to be more collectivist. So the topic of race fits more into the collectivist mindset than it does in the individualist mindset. So it's not that they're like, I don't want to talk about race because it makes me uncomfortable. It's that they don't see it as nearly as an important situation. Kind of like if I asked you, tell me about yourself, top 10 qualities, you wouldn't say race in it. You know, it's that kind of mindset. Um, It's not the most important thing in the world. What matters most is your character, how you present yourself, things of that nature. Um, but for someone who's a collectivist, it is very important with what group they associate themselves with. And this is not to say that, you know, cause we're human beings We're at some point we identify with some particular group, right? Sure. So even Christians identify with other Christians, right? So there's, there's nothing necessarily wrong about group identification, right? But, uh, when it comes to the topic of race, race is you know, as the left likes to put it, it's a social construct that the right doesn't really like too much. You know, they don't like the topic of race because it doesn't make too much sense to them. It doesn't make too much sense to cater policy to a specific group of people. But even within that idea, what is black? Right? Is it someone who is mixed? Is it someone black is black is black is black? What's that song? Yeah. <laughs> You know, uh, it, it's it, and this is not necessarily me saying this. I'm just trying sure. to translate for people who are listening. So, you know, the topic of race is just kind of a weird thing for them to glam over and say, we need to help these specific people um, rather than they see things on a policy level. And I'm kind of the same way where I'm like, listen, I get it. You want to you want to help people if you. You know, just with a human eye, see that, you know, there's black people who are in, in terrible situations. That's going to be the easiest thing for you to associate it with. It's their, their skin color. And what I'm saying is you can do both, right? You can help a lot of black people without even focusing on their race by having good policy, by going back to local governance, by holding people locally more accountable. Um, and I think one of the bigger issues that we've had is that we've looked at the federal government as our as our solution to everything. As soon as something small happens, we just run to the federal government. Uh, George Floyd dies. Now we need a federal bill about policing. What the crap that's happening in Minneapolis is not happening in bumfuck Idaho, right? They were protesting in the United Kingdom. It's not even the same fucking yeah. country. <laughs> that's a whole different story. That's a whole different story. But... Seriously, man. But you know, it's it's that kind of it's that kind of thing where they constantly run towards the federal government for everything. Um, right. We need to have local governance, and obviously, there are things that are going to help poorer people 
And if statistically, uh, you know, black Americans are on the poorer side of things, then yeah, they're going to get helped more than other people. But what I see as a kind of dangerous thing is for the right to say, well, we'll just out identity politics you, you know, just like they like to out, you know, own the libs, uh, you know, that mindset can be kind of funny sometimes, you know, but when it comes to policymaking, it can be just as damaging from sure. both sides, you know, well, it's so, like cancel culture, right? I mean, yeah, I've seen so many people complain about cancel culture and then advocate for Whoopi Goldberg to be fired. Yeah. That's not and being like, consistent whatsoever. That, come on. Like the problem <laughs> is the cancel culture, like not the people. <laughs> right. And right. so, I, yeah. Yeah. So I'm totally with you on that. And it's something that both the, both the right and the left are guilty of is, um, just in just hypocrisy you know it's i guess it's just part of human nature but uh, i don't know if we're conscious of it i guess i guess we can overcome it yeah listen we all do hypocritical things you know not me um, not you except for you but <laughs> but we, you know we all it, to some degree we do hypocritical things but that's why it's good to be conscious of certain things and and why I advocate for people to be principled. And, you know, if you are a free speech advocate, then be a free speech advocate. If you, I, you know, I don't necessarily like Whoopi Goldberg and the things that she says, but I don't think she should get fired. Right. right. And I understand what she was trying to say. Right. right. I give her, the, you know, a, a, the benefit of the doubt as to what she was trying to say. So I get it. You know, some people aren't, you know, linguists, you know, they, they screw up and say things in the, weird way and see they use one particular word in the wrong way and people misinterpret it and turn it into a bigger thing than it actually is i'm pretty sure she's aware that the holocaust you know was yeah. anti-jewish right right when push yeah. comes to shove maybe she just slipped a little bit in the way she framed it right <laughs> I, like i understand she was trying to say this is a human problem or whatever whatever right. the hell she was saying right. but i don't think it was anything worth firing at all um or let or me ask you suspending. this let me ask you this what do you think of a remake of 12 years a slave movie right did you ever watch the movie 12 years a slave i did not so it's an amazing movie true story about a guy a black guy who was free and then he was abducted by some white racist dudes from the south and then mm -hmm. sold into slavery and he was a slave for 12 years before they were able to like figure out that he wasn't really a slave right mm -hmm. tragic story um anyway the movie is very explicit very graphic I mean, it's just like to your core, like I'm a white dude and I was like crying and, yeah. and it wasn't like I was virtue signal and I was with like my two buddies, like, let's go see this. Heard it was good. And like at the end, we're like crying. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It was like a moving movie, man. But what if they remade that movie, exact same script. And the only difference was all the black people were white and all the white people were black. I mean, the, po the point being like this was an act of horror from humans to humans right like yeah you can you can take the racial element out of it and 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 get almost closer to the to what's so unnerving about the whole the whole thing that was slavery like how could human beings do this to other human beings yeah. right and so i don't know i just thought that that would be a really provocative project for somebody to do <laughs> um you know and i think that you know it's almost provocative to say, but you know, the slaves didn't free themselves. Right. We didn't Harriet have, did, damn it. 
<laughs> well, I mean, there were some people that, you know, Harriet helped, but I'm saying slavery as an institution didn't, wasn't ended by slaves themselves. Right. Um, you know, there are obviously people who weren't slaves and there are people who look different than the slaves, than the African slaves that said, this is an immoral act. And, and I would argue that they were basing it off of their Christian values, um, which is why it was baked into the constitution as far as saying all men are, treat, are treated equally, right? Despite the, them understanding that there was still going to be slavery for, you know, for that period of time, but it was growing, the, um, it was becoming more and more unpopular. Um, so, but even, even within that being stated, you know, slavery as an institution existed since, you know, for God knows how long. Time right? immemorial. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> exactly. So it's not to say that, well, you know, slavery was all right until it became, you know, too risque. Until um, Jesus came and said, don't do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's to say that, you know, it's a some way we're not special, you know, and there, there are good people of all makes. And, and I give, I give some credit to some people even the people who were participating in this particular system um, who did not feel comfortable doing so. And, you know, as someone who's participated in a particular system that did not feel comfortable doing so, I regret doing it. And I understand that some of them regretted doing it. So, you know, I've heard different adaptations talking about the constitution and how they were um, hoping that they're in a very near future that slavery would be abolished. And this idea that the Civil War was not about slavery at all is also ridiculous. Um, so, you know, there's the only difference our, in the Constitution between the Confederate Constitution and the U.S. Constitution was a clause yeah. that protected slavery. It's it's documented literally yeah. that it was about slavery by the people who today claim it wasn't. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, like I said, it wasn't slaves who freed themselves. We fought a bloody war within this country to end slavery. There was an abolitionist movement that was behind it. Um, mm -hmm. So this idea that uh, there are no good white people until you know the 1970s, where they all just had this racial awakening after the civil rights movement or something like it—it's it, kind of ridiculous. I also think, I think it's easy to demonize the past, right? Because a lot of the people aren't alive to defend themselves, um, and it's easy to simplify the past too. So I think it, not even just talking about race, but just about a ton of different things. We could talk about male and female relationships and marriage. You know, I've talked to so many people who just think that, you know, basically women were told what to do and grabbed by the hair and forced to do it until, the, you know, the women's movement. <laughs> I'm like, that's ridiculous, right? Uh, but it's easy to think that, right? Because you can find a horror story here or there. To support that and, and just ignore all the other loving relationships or the the way people just handle things or the way people saw families and things of that nature it's easy to think that it's easy to glam onto the horror stories um and much when we talk about race we talk about the horror stories so you know uh, if you go to someone and say you know the police aren't you know systemically racist they're like what about george floyd what about eric garner what about Thanks for naming all the rare horror stories that have existed in our country, right? The fact that we can name 
each and every situation is yeah. a good thing. Yeah. Name one person who died in the Holocaust. Yeah. Other than Anne Frank. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, cause it happened to all of them that we lose yeah. sight of who <laughs> happened to. Cause we just right. think of the, yeah, right. That's interesting. I never thought of it. Like the fact that you can list them makes it kind of undermines the, the narrative. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. Well, yeah. and one thing I wanted to mention too, and I want to be conscientious of your time, but you know, yeah, and I don't know how, how, how true this is. I just saw Tim pool. I don't know, a couple of months ago on his podcast, pulled up a really interesting chart about the, um, the divide between the right and the left in terms of radicalism, right? Mm -hmm. So extreme right versus extreme left. And apparently over the last couple of decades, the right has gone slightly further to the right, but the left has gone disproportionately further to the left, right? Mm -hmm. So the rat, the, the majority of contemporary political radical radicalization that's happening is on the left. It's happening on the right too, to some extent, but it's manifest on the left. And I wonder if the cause of that is, it seems to me like when a political party, especially if it's myopic or hyper-focused on one or two like huge issues, and I kind of hinted at this earlier when we were speaking, when those issues are resolved, in order to continue to be relevant and perpetuate power, you you almost have to radicalize in order to um, um, like maintain like like I said relevance right so for example if you look at um, if you look at the Third Reich I don't know why Hitler always comes up but if you look at, <laughs> if you look at the Third Reich they had to have like they had to basically just have this radical narrative and propaganda about who the enemy of the Germans were was and and and, and who was really responsible for the loss of World War One in 1918. And you know, they like really had to push this kind of basically bullshit narrative about whose fault it was and in order to perpetuate their own power. I mean when Hitler came to power in whatever year it was, 33, um uh one in 40 Germans was actually a member of the Nazi party. There were 80 million Germans in Germany, 2 million mm -hmm. of them voted for Nazis. And so it's like, it was just like this minority, but it was, it was so radicalized. And I, I my, my feet, the point I'm trying to make is my fear is as we solve problems, because as many problems as we create, we do solve problems. Sometimes I think gay marriage is an example of a problem that we solved. We, we right yeah. it wrong there. Uh, civil rights movement, obviously slavery, obviously women's suffrage, you know, as much as I hate it, you know, it's probably the right thing to do. Right. <laughs> and so my, my, my point being as much as many problems as we solve, how do we prevent, uh, uh, the natural selection, like the, the, the radicalization of political movements in order to, um, uh, you know, justify their own existence. I don't know how you prevent it. Cause I, I think it's, it's like a natural inclination for people who seek power. Um, I'll give you an example. So my, I have a German friend who, um, who li lives in Germany and she mm -hmm. was telling me how, uh, you know, when all the refugees came from, you know, the Middle East and North Africa uh, and Syria, and they started coming at, at the loads, uh, you know, a number of years ago, at its peak, you know, you, you had tons and tons of people coming in on trains and, 
and, and, and arriving in all types of ways from other countries. And so the, the German government, you know, via Angela Merkel said, Germany is open to you. So the, um, everybody flooded in. And so how do you support all these people? Well, you, you know, you have all these uh, nonprofits and uh, you have lawyers, immigration lawyers, you have all these different things. But what she told me was like, but now these people have found an avenue to make money, right? And, and support a particular system. You've now created an industry, right? And once you create an industry, it's hard to get rid of it. And so I equate that to like you had mentioned actually the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement was very specific, uh, at least in my interpretation, it was very specific about getting rid of segregation, right? And so civil in order rights to do act. Right, like the Civil Rights Act, exactly. Um, and to have that legislation passed through is a very specific, you know, goal. But what do you right. do with that now energy? What? Yeah. Oh, yeah, fuck. exactly. Like the next day, you know, oh, fuck. <laughs> what are we going to do now? It's <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, everybody, we can go home. Um, you know, so what do you do with that? And so I kind of look at, you know, the assassination of King. All right. And you, and, you know, that triggered riots and things of that nature. But then you have, you know, the energy from the riots, you have the energy from post-civil civil rights movement. And so what do you do with that? And so you have people like Jesse Jackson who come up, right? And become, it becomes some sort of uh, thought leader or at least like race leader, right? Uh, and what is, of course, what does he do? He runs for the Democrat party uh, and tries to run for presidency. At one point, uh, you know, the very party that was trying to prevent the Civil Rights Act from being passed. But who remembers that? Um, longest filibuster in U.S. history. Um, 27 hours. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we don't we don't care about that stuff. Um, but, you know, ultimately he took he took the reins of that particular movement. Um, or at least one of the people who took the reins of that particular movement. So you had all this energy that was based off of race and a collectivist movement. And so you accomplished that one big goal. Now what? What do you do with it? And, you know, you create an industry based off of it. Um, you know, some people have called it the race grievance industry. Um, I actually kind of came up with a term that is kind of all-encompassing what you see with post the this um neo-marxist movement called big identity you know we call about big tech we have big identity I like now that. I like um, it. we have the aclu that's part of big identity we, you know you can name different corporations part of big identity they all make money off the idea that identities uh specific identities are being targeted specific identities are being disenfranchised oppressed you name it and they all campaign off of that give us money and we'll lead towards equality whatever equality actually leads to, right? What does that actually mean? It doesn't matter. That's not the point. Uh, so, you know, I, especially ACLU, the, you know, the group that, uh, that advocated for, you know, Nazis to have the right to speak freely is now saying that <laughs> people cannot speak freely because it hurts other people. Um, you know, so they've become incredibly illiberal, but they become illiberal because it's more profitable to be that today um, than to be pr uh, principled. So, um, you know, we have a lot of that, you know, these the taking over of certain movements. You had mentioned the, the gay rights movement. 
you know, to or at least the like gay shit, right. Now that the gay people can get married now, now we really need to focus on like trans people. It's like it gets more, more and more like the extreme. Like and, and and God bless trans people. Like of course, like equal rights, whatever. I'm totally cool with that. But like nobody was talking about trans issues in 2006. Because right. the gay issue hadn't been solved yet, right? And it's just like so. The more the, the more basic problems we solve, the more niche problems we focus on. So it's like the more radicalized we inherently become. Yeah, so, yeah. And then people pretend that we don't solve the issues. You know, we do. <laughs> you know, we we. That's what I'm saying. Like in at least in American society we have an inclination towards progress or we've at least had an inclination towards progress more so than many of other countries that you'll ever find. Right. Um, you know, we've been able to uh, put it like this from the start of Barack Obama's term to the end of Barack Obama's term, he went from saying marriage is between a man, a man and a woman to saying he's okay with gay marriage. Yeah. He right? crossed the threshold. He crossed the threshold, right? And that's in an eight-year time span. So, you know, the Don't idea that... you try it, right? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I'm not touching that one. Um... <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, but yeah, the, the idea that we don't lead towards progress uh, is ridiculous. We're constantly leading towards progress. We're constantly doing things and, and improving things and looking at certain things. Um, that's why, like, I think it's utterly ridiculous the way we talk about race as if nothing has changed since slavery. Like, you people are out of your goddamn mind if you say that. And the funniest thing is the ones who are the loudest about it uh, scream oppression and they get in their Mercedes Benz and drive to their big house, right? So it, it's that's why I think many of these people... Either they're ideologues who uh, truly believe in what they're saying, just don't see how ridiculous they're saying, or I, I don't like to use the term grifters, but you know maybe there's some sort maybe of it's a grift. Uh, maybe it's a grift. It's possible, you know. Like, I does know. Oprah truly believe that white women need to apologize to her, or is she just going along with the times where they're just forcing white people to apologize for existing? um i don't know oprah's an interesting one because i don't agree with oprah very often but i've yeah. never i've never just intuitively as a human being taken her for a liar yes but it, that's the thing it's like why i always ask question why now right why right. did and you you've probably seen the clip that i'm talking about where she has white people wanting to apologize for their participation in a racist system, the same racist system that made her a billionaire, they now need to apologize for. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, Oprah was white women's best friend for fucking like two decades. Like, what is she talking about? Um, and, and, and she made so much money off of this. And now in a split second, yeah, America's this racist society. We need to Everybody needs to apologize. Everybody needs to read Maya Angelou right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, or Robert D'Angelo. Read Robert D'Angelo right now. She's part of the book club. <laughs> Damn, Oprah's book club. Does she even read the books? There's no way she's <laughs> reading the books. I don't know. She's got, yeah, she's, she's spark noting it. Yeah. Or her, her she, she makes club. her assistant read it. 
Yeah. So what happened? <laughs> Tell me what happens. <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. Biography, I really should read that. Yeah, book. what happens? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's first of uh, all, it's called an autobiography, but it's written by someone else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is the most confusing shit I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Tell my life story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I I'll make corrections until you know. You might have to wrap up the last couple chapters without me, though. Yeah. <laughs> Too soon? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, man, hey, it's been great to have you on the show. I've really, really appreciated your insight. Where can people find you? Um, yeah, people can go to wrongspeak.net. Uh, that's my website for Wrongspeak Publishing. I'm the founder of it. I advocate for free speech. Uh, along with intellectual thoughts. So if anybody wants to contribute an article, feel free to contact me through the website. Um, I'm on Twitter heavily these days. So at wrong underscore speak, uh, you can follow me on there. Um, you can purchase the book from either wrong speaks website, or you can go to Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. You can find black victim to black victor there. Um, yeah, I'm on Facebook, Instagram. You know, just look for Adam B. Coleman. You'll you'll find me. I'm pretty accessible. So, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. It was an honor and a pleasure to have you. I'm gonna end the stream and then we'll do a quick debrief and call it a night. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it.